Elisha is an Old Testament prophet, and, and if you've got your copy of the Word of God with you, you've got your Bible with you, I'd invite you to 2 Kings chapter 3. Now, we spent a couple of weeks beginning this study looking at the prophet Elijah, uh, Elisha, and we've looked at 2 Kings chapter 4. These have been a, a couple maybe rather familiar studies about the prophet Elisha, some of the scriptures and components of the Word of God that have been maybe a little bit more familiar. We began by looking at uh, the widow who had lost her husband, was deep in debt, and the creditor was coming to take her sons away. We saw the miracle, the miraculous provision of the oil. Last week, we took a look at uh, a woman and her husband, and uh, they were blessing and providing for Elisha and for the servant. And they said, let's, let's do something for you. Let's, uh, what is there that you, can, uh, that you would want or that you would desire to have? And basically, she said, I'm, I'm good. I'm content. But the servant said she has no son. They prayed and believed, and God provided her with a son. That son grew up, eventually went out to the fields, complained of his head, passed away in her arms, and Elisha, through the power of God, raised that boy back to life. So a couple of those are some rather familiar Elisha scriptures, but backing up just a chapter here to chapter 3, we're going to take a look at one that maybe is not quite as well-known, a pretty interesting scripture and a study and a story. And I believe as we take a look at this story together, we're going to be going almost entirely through this entire chapter, chapter 3. But I think we're going to be looking at a number of components or what we might call ingredients of miraculous faith. How many of you know many things take ingredients? If, if you like chocolate, if you like cake, if you like ice cream, uh, there's a whole host of ingredients that make that special food that you enjoy so worthwhile. And it takes kind of all of these ingredients working together in somewhat of a similar fashion. I think there's some ingredients as we take a look at this scripture. We take a look at 2 Kings chapter 3. Not that we say, okay, this is all about us and it's got to be you having this faith and you having this and you having that and then we're going to dictate or tell God what to do. It's not that. I do believe that there are components or ingredients of faith that are worthwhile and helpful to have. We're going to be exploring this study and this chapter together. So we're going to begin in verse 1. And so it'll kind of take us a little while to work through a good portion of this scripture. We're going to get through almost the entire chapter throughout our time together. 2 Kings chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. It says, now Jehoram, the son of Ahab. Let's, let's pause right there. How many of you know when you read through the word of God, uh, in particular certain chapters, there's some lists of names, and, and sometimes it can be a little bit challenging to go through. We're going to get through a number of different names because there's a number of different individuals in this particular chapter. And so this is Jehoram, the son of Ahab. Now, last year, we spent quite a bit of time going through the prophet Elijah. And Elijah was a prophet during the reign of King Ahab and his wife, Jezebel. Yes, you've heard the term Jezebel, and it refers back to this woman. So Ahab and Jezebel, not a godly couple at all, a rather wicked, sinful couple of individuals. This 
wicked king, Ahab. His son now is Jehoram. And he is the king over Israel. So Jehoram, the son of Ahab, became king over Israel at Samaria in the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and reigned 12 years. How many of you are glad you're not reading through the text this morning? We, we, we've got all kinds of interesting into individuals, and uh, we're, we're going to pronounce it best we can. So you've got Jehoram, king of Israel, son of the wicked king, Ahab, and then it also mentions Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah. Now, kind of in your mind at this particular point, Israel is a divided kingdom. So you've got Israel as the northern kingdom, Judah as that southernmost kingdom, that, that individual tribe. And so you've got individual kingdoms at this particular point. And we're seeing Jehoram, the king of Israel, which is the northern kingdom, Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, in the southern kingdom. And he, verse 2, this is back to Jehoram that we're starting with. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, but not like his father and mother. For he put away the sacred pillar of Baal that his father had made. Now, that word Baal, that individual Baal, probably rings a bell. And again, back last year, we spent an entire Sunday going over this incredible account of the conflict with prophets of Baal. It was a showdown on Mount Carmel. Elijah and all of these prophets of Baal. So this is Ahab's doing, and now his son Jehoram, it says he did evil in the sight of the Lord, not quite to the extent of his father. Now, scholars and commentators will look at this when it says that he put away the sacred pillar of Baal his father had made. Some would look to that and say, well, he, he did something that was good or positive or godly. Others would look to that and say, he just did that because he heard about what took place with his father, Ahab, in the showdown with the prophets of Baal. Whatever his motivation for doing it, we're not quite 100% sure. The fact of the matter is, he did something good, something positive. He put that away. But the scripture is saying, this is not a godly man. He's not as sinful as his father Ahab, but he'd, he'd put that sacred pillar away. Nevertheless, verse 3, he persisted in the sins of Jeroboam, the sons of Nebat, who had made Israel sin. He did not depart from them. So maybe there was, there was some, a handful of positive things he was doing, but as a whole, still following in many of the sins of many of the individuals before him. Now, verse 4, we're going to see a little bit of the conflict. Misha, king of Moab, was a sheep breeder, and he regularly paid the king of Israel 100,000 lambs and the wool of 100,000 rams. Paid tribute. This, this was Moab, another neighboring nation that Israel had conquered and overcome earlier in Scripture. And when you're a conquered land, some of it is you pay tribute. It's, it's okay because we've been conquered. We're going to now pay these things to this country. So Moab was paying Israel. And this is a, a pretty healthy tab, right? 100,000 lambs and the wool of 100,000 rams. That's a lot over the course of a year. But verse 5 but it happened when Ahab died that the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. 
he says, aha, this is my, this is my time. I'm going to get out of paying all of the, the rams and the lambs. Uh, you know, Ahab died. His son's taking over. So now's the chance we're not paying anymore. And that's the conflict. Verse 6. So King Jehoram went out of Samaria at that time and mustered all Israel. It didn't take too much to get your people together to say, listen, this country that was paying us all this tribute, they don't want to pay it anymore. Let's go and make them pay us. Boy, doesn't this sound, this, this sounds nothing like anything that goes on in the world today between countries and lands and nations. And you know, I mean, everybody just gets along so well. Not quite, right? So Moab used to pay tribute. Moab says, we're not doing it anymore. Jehoram of Israel says, let's gather together. We want to go make sure that they keep paying us. So what does he do? Verse 7. Then he went and sent to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, saying, The king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go with me to fight against Moab? So Jehoram, the king of Israel, the northern kingdom, he's mad because Moab stopped paying. He gets all of Israel together. Now he gets with Jehoshaphat of Judah and says, Hey, you want to get in on this? We're about to go tell Moab they got to pay up. You want in on this? Can, can we go together? And he says, I will go up. I am as you are. My people as your people. My horses as your horses. So now Jehoram has Jehoshaphat. Israel plus Judah, and they're going to go and take care of Moab. Verse 8, then he, Jehoram, said, well, which way shall we go up? Jehoram is the son. He's the new king. He's not as experienced as Jehoshaphat, who had been king over Judah for many years. So he's asking him strategically, what's the best route to take? If we're going to go into Moab and get them to, to give us our tribute back, what should we do? And what does he answer? He says, by the way of the wilderness of Edom. Wilderness of Edom would have been going through the southern part rather than what might be expected, which is to come through the northern part of the country. So now you've got Jehoram from Israel, Jehoshaphat from Judah. They're going through Edom, and guess what? Verse 9, the king of Israel went with the king of Judah and the king of Edom. So they've picked up another king, the king of Edom. And they marched on that roundabout route seven days. And there was no water for the army, nor for the animals that followed them. Just trying to set the stage. But what we have so far are three kings, three armies from three nations, and zero water. I mean, zero is a big thing today, right? You know, zero sugar and Mountain Dew zero sugar and zero Pepsi and zero, zero, zero. When you're talking about zero sugar, that's a good thing. When you're talking about zero water, period, not a good thing. Three kings, three armies, three nations, and zero water. The king of Israel said, verse 10, alas, the Lord has called these three kings together to deliver them into the hand of Moab. In other words, he says, we're in trouble. 
I mean, I, I got you into this, and now we got the king of Edom into this, and, and we're all in this, and it looks like it might be a bad thing. Verse 11, but Jehoshaphat said, Is there no prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of the Lord by him? So one of the servants of the king of Israel answered and said, Elisha the son of Shaphat is here, who poured water on the hands of Elijah. And Jehoshaphat said, The word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. Three kings now coming down to meet Elisha. Side note, this, this is not necessarily the, the direction we're going. We're going to be looking at ingredients of miraculous faith. But side note, when they went to talk about and when they went to meet with Elisha, his character and his reputation preceded him, right? They were talking about, isn't there some man of God? Isn't there somebody who knows God in a real way? And they said, yes, Elisha. What were the, the two main things they talked about? One person said, he's the one who used to pour water on Elijah's hands. He was a faithful servant. He faithfully served. And the other person said, well, yeah, he always has a word from the Lord. The word of the Lord is with him. Side note, for you and I, let us be found faithful as one who is faithful to serve and faithful to speak the words of the Lord. That's exactly what they were saying about Elisha. Certainly, we can go to him. If we're talking about ingredients of miraculous faith, as we pause right here, number one, I believe we need to go to God first. Now, we read this story, and we spend a lot of time trying to set it up because it involves a bunch of people and lands and countries and tribute. But when you get right down to it, these three kings are an awful lot like you and like me. Don't you think? I mean, these three kings were making plans, but not going to God about the plans. These three kings were getting together, and, and they said, let's do this. And King Jehoram said to Jehoshaphat, you want in on this? He says, I'm in. Where should we go? What's the best route the southern end, let's go through Edom. And by the way, we'll pick him up too. I think he'll come with us. So one king talks to a second. The two talk to a third. They talk strategy. They talk direction. They talk, how are we going to attack? And it takes them forever. It takes them seven days to take this long roundabout route They've got three armies they're trying to string together, and they're trying to, to do this all on their own, and then they run out of water. And then and only then does one of them finally say, hey, I have an idea. Maybe we should ask of God, is there somebody, anybody, who can inquire of God? And we laugh and we chuckle at sometimes the the actions of people in the Word of God. <laughs> look at these, look at these knuckleheads. Can, can you imagine? They made all these plans. I mean, the one king and the second king and the third king. 
They did all of that without going to God? Yeah, we can't imagine. Because chances are good you and me, at some point in our life, we've done the very same thing. We've not always gone to God first. Chances are we've said, we've run into an issue, we've run into a difficulty, and we've said, I can handle it. I got this. I'll help you out. I know someone who, I think someone can, and from our wisdom, from our insight, from our resources, from our connections, you name it, we think we can sort of figure it out. And chances are good at some point in time in our lives. We've tried, and we've attempted, and in some cases, we might even have made things worse. You ever felt that way? You get in a pickle, you get in a jam or some other kind of food metaphor, and you try to handle it yourself, and, and you try to work a little harder, and, it, and it's like you're, you're spinning your wheels, like you're, you're stuck in, in mud. Nothing's happening, nothing's going anywhere, and you look around and you think, huh, maybe I need to go to God about this. In a sense, that's what these individuals were doing. Now, now listen, hear me. Going to God at any time is a good thing. God wants us to go to Him. And we can turn to Him in trouble. And we can turn to Him when things look bleak. But I want to encourage us to go to God first. Part of that ingredient of miraculous faith, we're learning from some of the insights and some of the choices of others, in this case, what not to do. They went to God as a last resort. You've got one king who's not very godly, connecting with another king who's not much better, connecting with a third king who has nothing to do with God, and they're making plans and decisions all by themselves. And it doesn't work out very well. And they're out in the midst of this journey with no water, tired, hot, thirsty, still haven't even gotten to Moab, and they have no water. And someone says, oh, maybe there's a man of God. Maybe, maybe somehow we can go to God. Our tendency, much like theirs, is often to go to every other option except for God. I mean, this seems so easy, doesn't it? Three on one, it seems like it's not even a fair fight. It's not a fair battle. Three kings, three armies against one. But if you can't even get to the battlefield... If you can't even get to that place of Moab where you're going to ask for that tribute to come back, you're not going to be very successful. So they tried to plan things on their own. They ended up on the journey, tired, hot, no water for them or their animals or any. I mean, it's kind of like their vehicles, right? This wasn't tanks and planes and, and all of that. This is hand-to-hand -hand kind of fighting combat, and you've got horses, and you've got all that are a part of your army. Nobody's got water. You and I, we've got to go to God 
first. It doesn't matter if it's a big thing or a little thing. If it's important to us, it's important to God. Let's bring it to him. Because sometimes the challenge is, many people might think, well, I don't want to go to God with that. It's really, really big. So I'll take my little things to God, but the big things, I don't want to, I don't want to bother him with that. I'll just try to do it on my own. Does that really make sense? Do we really have the resources to handle the big things? We don't. But yet, sometimes that's what people do. Sometimes that's what people do with one another. They get some bad news and, and they don't want to share that with somebody that's close or near or dear, not sure whether they can handle it or take it, so I just won't share that. I'll just handle it all on my own. Some people are like that with God. I'll take the little things to God, but the big things, I'll, I'll, just, I'll just do my best. With others, it's the flip. They have no problem bringing the big needs and the big requests, the, you know, the, the financial needs, the physical needs, the, you know, the, these big things. But the average everyday decisions of life don't include God in that at all. I'll I just do it on my own. It doesn't matter whether it's big or little, massive or minimal. We can take our needs, take our requests. We can go to God for wisdom and healing and insight and provision. We can go to God and should go to God first. Let him be that first thought, our first option, our first prayer, rather than, as we've seen in Scripture here, rather than the last resort. So my question to you and I how are we treating God? Are we treating God as someone that we come to right at the beginning where we say, God, I'm bringing my needs and requests and, and, and decisions and, and, and all the things that I'm doing in my life, God, I'm taking them to you first. Or are we bringing it as a last resort? So an ingredient, first ingredient of miraculous faith is that we go to God first. Secondly, I believe we must prepare for God to move. Some of the key verses of Scripture in these next verses of our text. Verse 13, Elisha said to the king of Israel, What have I to do with you? Go to the prophets of your father and the prophets of your mother. He's basically saying, listen, your family, your household has had a pretty big, pretty close relationship with Baal. I mean, if, if you're that desperate, why don't you just go seek out Baal? He's pretty bold here. Again, as a last resort, they're saying, well, maybe we ought to find someone who knows something about God. And the man of God's saying, if you're in that much trouble, why aren't you going back to Baal? But the king of Israel said to him, no, for the Lord has called these three kings together to deliver them into the hand of Moab. Now, verse 14, pretty interesting. You thought the previous verse was bold. Elisha said, As the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, surely were it not that I regard the presence of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, I would not look at you nor see you. Wow. 
You want to talk about blunt and to the point. He's basically saying, listen, you're not a man of God. You're, you're leading the country of God. This is Israel, God's special land and special people. And you're, you're not doing anything to seek after him. And if it wasn't for Jehoshaphat, and not that he's the greatest man of God, but there's a little something in him there. If it wasn't for him, man, I might not, in other words, I might not even stick around. Now he got a little bit riled up. So then he makes another request to, to say, let's, let's get kind of settled down and see what, what God might have. He continues and he says, bring me a musician. Then it happened when the musician played that the hand of the Lord came upon him. As the musician played and, and he was able to really kind of focus on the Lord, the Lord came upon him and he said, verse 16, Thus saith the Lord. Are you ready? Key verse of the entire chapter is right about to come here. Verse 16. Thus saith the Lord. And these kings, no doubt, their ears perk up. Okay, what does the Lord saith? What's he got to say to me? What's he got to say to us? We're in the midst of a difficult situation. We have no idea what we're going to do. We've gone to him as a last resort. But Elisha says, God's got a word. God's got a message for you. Thus says the Lord. And they're on edge. Here it comes. They're about to bail us out. Thus saith the Lord, Make this valley full of ditches. Huh? They were probably looking at Elisha the way many of you are looking at me today. About half the versions or translations will read that. He says, make this valley full of ditches. He probably would say, time out, Elisha. There's three of us kings with three of our armies from three of these lands and nations. We've got skilled and trained fighters in the army. And you want to just stick a shovel in their hand and tell them to go out and dig a ditch? That doesn't make sense, Elisha. What are you talking about? He says, make this valley full of ditches, verse 17, for thus saith the Lord, you shall not see wind, nor shall you see rain, yet the valley shall be filled with water that you, your cattle, and your animals may drink. He basically says, nothing seems like it's coming, but it's coming. Nothing seems like it's happening, but it's going to happen. So start digging. Make this valley full of ditches. Make this valley full of ditches. I think the ingredient for us is preparing for God to move. What we were saying is, I'm going to go to God first. And certainly, I trust him and I believe that God's going to be able to do it. And what is he saying here? Do something about it. Prepare. Get ready. You're not going to see anything. You're not going to hear anything. It seems like nothing's happening, but it's going to happen. It seems like nothing's coming, but it's coming. Prepare for God to move. 
So grab a shovel and start digging. Dig a ditch. Prepare. Trust. Believe that God's about to work upon your situation. That God's about to move in your life. Prepare for an abundance. He says, make the valley full of ditches. Well, now you're getting a little, little carried away here, Elisha. I mean, we're tired. We're thirsty. We, we don't have any water, remember? You, wanna, you want us to go out in the heat and do physically exertion and all that exercise? Can't we, let's just go dig one little ditch and we're done. He said, no. The Lord says, make this valley full. Get ready. I mean, if you want to get ready, let's get ready. Make them full of ditches. He says, prepare. Get ready. Start right where you are. You're right here in a valley. So grab a shovel. Dig right where you're at. Sometimes we, we want to wait until God moves. And then we'll act. It's a little bit of that bargaining with God. Well, God, if you do this, then I promise I'm going to come along behind you and I will do that. If, but, but you go first, God. The challenge or the encouragement here, Elisha's saying, you've got to get ready. God's about to do something. Are you prepared for it? Are you ready for it? Or are you waiting for God to do something first? Don't wait till later. Go ahead and do it now. Dig now. Provide an opportunity for God to meet with you in your life. See, so many times we want the move of God. We want the celebration of what God's doing without the preparation of getting ready for what God's about to do. Celebration involves preparation. Now, it doesn't quite make sense. Might not necessarily make sense to you and I. Might not necessarily make sense to them. They are getting ready to dig, dig, dig some ditches in a valley. There's something going to get ready for or prepared for what's coming. Are you and I prepared for what's coming? I think God wants to do something incredible in you and I individually, in our families, in our church. Are we getting ready and prepared? What kind of ditches might we need to dig that allows opportunity of God connecting and speaking into our hearts and into our lives? Maybe to to carve out a little bit more time to be with God and hear from God. God. Maybe to, to, to find a little extra time of prayer. Find a little extra time of reading and studying God's word. Maybe some of the disciplines of worship and fasting or other things. But what are we doing to spiritually prepare and get ready to receive for when God moves and blesses? We all want the celebration. But many times, forget about the preparation. Charles Spurgeon wrote this. He says, Act not on the mere strength of what you have, but an expectation of that which you have asked. 
We're believing God. We are trusting God. We're realizing that, God, I don't have the resources. I don't have what's needed for the situation that I'm facing. For them, three kings, three armies, zero water. The preparation was to dig a whole valley full of ditches for whatever God was about to do. He just simply said, it's going to come. You won't see the rain, you won't see the wind, but the valley will be filled with water. So get ready. Dig. Prepare. Are you and I spiritually ready for what God's about to do in our lives individually? Let's prepare. We're trusting God to move. We're believing for him to move. We're coming to God and hopefully going to God first for wisdom, guidance, direction, healing, provision, all of that. Now let's prepare. I believe that God's going to work. God's going to move. So I'm, I'm going to prepare and get ready. Ingredients of miraculous faith, we go to God first. We prepare for him to move. Thirdly, I think the challenge for us is to think big. 2 Kings chapter 3, verse 18, this, this kind of blows you and I away. This is Elisha still giving the words of the Lord, and he says, This is a simple matter in the sight of the Lord. Oh, let's just stop right there. Just to remind us what we're talking about. We're talking about three kings with three armies in the middle of nowhere with zero water. And they've been instructed to dig a valley full of ditches. And God says, you won't see wind or rain, but it's coming and it's going to be flooded. And by the way, that's a simple thing in the sight of the Lord. Wouldn't you and I, our minds are kind of blown and we're saying, that's a huge thing in the sight of man. But in the sight of the Lord, to bring some water in the middle of nowhere for three kings and three armies, no biggie. It's not a big deal. It's a simple thing in the sight of the Lord. But verse 18 continues. He says, He will also deliver the Moabites into your hand. You shall attack every fortified city, every choice city, cut down every good tree, stop up every spring of water, ruin every good place or piece of land with stones. God is so mighty and God is so powerful, not only is bringing water for three kings and three nations in the middle of nowhere a simple thing, but I'm also going to deliver the Moabites into your hands. The first thing is probably way bigger than they can imagine. How in the world are we going to make it? How are our animals going to make it? How are we going to have the, the water, the hydration, the strength and stamina needed to continue to, to go into Moab? I mean, they're just thinking about the here and now. God says, no worries. Providing you with water for all of that, it's a simple thing. But I'm going to go above and beyond that. I'm going to give the Moabites into your hand. See, many times the enemy deceives us into thinking or discourages us into thinking that our situation is hopeless. Maybe you've been there. Maybe you are there. 
What you're going through, it's hopeless, and there's no way out. There's no way through. I might as well just sit here and just let everything pass me by. I give up. I can't handle it. It's too much. The enemy loves to kind of keep pushing that, keep pushing that, keep discouraging. What these kings, again, not godly kings, not men after God's own heart kind of kings, but these individuals and their armies... Their view of the situation was, it's literally hopeless. We thought it was going to be a piece of cake, three on one, and now we're in the middle of nowhere with no water. They're thinking, the situation we face is hopeless. And God says, it's no big deal to give you water. But beyond that, I'll also give the Moabites into your hand. They thought their situation was hopeless and they were helpless. And God said, it's no biggie. Why? He has the strength. He has the power. He has the resources needed to come through with what they were facing. I believe the same thing about you and I. You might be facing a, a struggle or a situation and it looks as if there's no way out. It's helpless. Hopeless, what do we do? Where do we turn? Understand, God has the might. God has the strength. God has the resources. God has the capabilities to heal or guide or direct or provide. Whatever the situation might be, it seems huge to us. It's a simple matter in the sight of the Lord. Big, big, big to you and I. Simple in the sight of the Lord. God's able to do even more than we might think possible. That reminds me of that scripture in the New Testament, Ephesians 3, 20 and 21. Paul writes, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Now, you want to get a little charged up, a little bit encouraged in God? Look up Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20, and then begin looking at it in various versions or translations. If you've got a, a smartphone, a tablet, and you've got the Bible app, you just do that with the tap of a button. They've got 30, 40, 50 different versions or translations. Here's just a, a handful of them. I read, he says, to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. One of it puts it like this, these words. He's able to do immeasurably more. Another one says this, far more abundantly. Another version says this, able to do infinitely more. The message translation, which is a little bit more of a paraphrase, kind of puts it in the longest amount of words, but it says, far more than you could ever imagine or guess or request in your wildest dreams. In other words, God's able to do way much more than we think possible. In our minds... If we were there and we're one of those uh, kings, we're one of those armies, we're thinking just getting a little bit of water for everybody to have a little something 
and just not die of heat exhaustion? I mean, that seems pretty far out. How are you going to find enough out in the middle of nowhere? It seems far beyond what they could imagine. And what was far beyond them was a simple thing to God. But then God said, I'm going to go beyond that. And we're going to have you have victory over the Moabites. So ingredients of some miraculous faith. Let's go to God first. Prepare for God to move. Think big. Again, we're, we're trusting in God to work. But finally, let's start small. Start small. The encouragement was, was to dig ditches. <laughs> Make the valley full of ditches. So we continue in the scripture, verse 20. Now it happened in the morning when the grain offering was offered that suddenly water came by way of Edom and the land was filled with water. It says this happened in the morning. Which means it was kind of an understood thing. It wasn't specifically mentioned. He said, make this valley full of ditches, and the next morning, water flowed, implying they were obedient to the voice and word of the Lord. In most every scripture, in most every biblical account, obedience is going to be in there somewhere. It's kind of a, an understood, almost a, a hidden aspect, but they were instructed to, and then water came suddenly out of Edom. That's the, the land of that third king as they were heading through from the southern end. Suddenly water came. The land was filled with water. Now, we're going to see God do the and then some. Because they had the water that they needed. But now verse 21, when all the Moabites heard that the kings had come up to fight against them, all who were able to bear arms and older were gathered, and they stood at the border. So they heard, they're coming up through Edom. Maybe they weren't quite ready or prepared for that. They thought if somebody would come, they might come by the northern end. So everybody who would and could, they gathered at the border. They're trying to get ready because they know there's three kings, three lands, three nations coming against us. Verse 22. Then they rose up early in the morning, and the sun was shining on the water, and the Moabites saw the water on the other side as red as blood. The miracles of God, not just to provide water for them, but confusing the Moabites, they saw all this water, almost like that mirage, and they saw it as blood. Verse 23, they said, This is blood. The kings have surely struck swords and killed one another. Now therefore, Moab, to the spoil. They were thinking that these three kings who got together, king of Israel, king of Judah, king of Edom, that they turned on one another, and it just became a bloodshed. And, and this army turned on this army, who turned on this army, and they just turned on each other. They, they just kind of slaughtered one another so much that the, the blood was just covering the field. So what did they think? Let's just go scoop up all the good stuff, right? Let's go gather up the spoils. 
So they are approaching all of these individuals. They're approaching all of these armies, no doubt, casually, nonchalantly, certainly not in army or attack mode. Maybe they don't even have their weapons on them. We don't know the specifics, but they're thinking, the battle's already over. We just got to go get the good stuff. So when they came to the camp of Israel, Israel rose up and attacked the Moabites. They fled before them and entered the land. It was almost like a surprise attack. They show up thinking they're going to get goodies, and instead, they get conquered. And what did it start with? It started small with three kings and three armies who somehow obeyed a simple message that said, we're going to dig ditches in the middle of nowhere when we have no water. That's some miraculous faith to trust and believe that God's going to work in their lives and their situations. Only God's able to send the water. Only God is able to do the provision. Only God is able to heal bodies. Only God is able to supply what's needed. Only God is able to restore relationships. Only God. And yet sometimes God nudges or encourages or asks that we dig a ditch. Step out in faith. Start small. Do the simple that he has asked us to do. And trust and believe that he will come through. What was their part of the miracle? Their part of the miracle was just to dig. God's the one that supplied the water. God's the one that allowed them to conquer the enemies. So when it comes to your situation, when it comes to my situation, let's not overlook our part. Now, let's be cautious. We're not saying that when I take a step of faith, that just demands and I make God do what I want. That's not what we're saying. That's not what's taking place. But stepping out in faith to say, God, you're asking me to do something simple. You're asking me to obey. You're asking me to step out in faith. God, I'm going to do that. Trusting, believing you are the one that's able to handle the situations I face. Don't overlook our part. James says, faith without works is dead. I trust and I believe God. I'm just not going to do anything. Sometimes he might ask us to take a simple step of faith. Sometimes he might ask us to dig a ditch. Don't overlook what God is calling us to do. And let's not attempt to try to do his part. We can't do the provision. We can't do the healing. We can't do all the guiding and directing. That's often what gets us into trouble in the first place is us trying to do things on our own. So let's stick to our part, which is faithfully obeying what God nudges us to do, and let's trust and rest in him for his part, which is the faithful provision, the faithful healing, the faithful direction and guidance. Ingredients of miraculous faith involves you and I going to God first, not last. 
It involves us preparing and getting ready for God to move. Celebration involves preparation. It involves thinking big, but starting small.